from New York, this is Democracy Now! Donald Trump pleads guilt, not guilty to 37 counts as he becomes the first U.S. president to be booked and arraigned on federal charges. We'll speak with the head of CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. For almost anybody else, with those kinds of charges and the evidence as we understand it, they would have been in there to plead guilty. Uh, but Donald Trump wasn't. He was there to plead not guilty, to fight this. Um, and you know, that, that is a unique and extraordinary set of events. While Donald Trump was freed without bail for violating the Espionage Act, that has not been the case for others, like whistleblowers Reality Winner and Daniel Hale. Then to sports washing. We'll speak to the sister of a jailed Saudi dissident about how the kingdom is using its oil fortune to reshape its image by taking over the world of professional golf with the merger of its own Live Golf and the PGA Tour. Whatever happened to President Biden's pledge to make Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman a pariah after the brutal assassination of Jamal Khashoggi? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 felony charges around his handling of classified documents after surrendering to federal authorities in Miami Tuesday. The counts include violations of the Espionage Act and obstruction of justice. Special Counsel Jack Smith observed proceedings in the courtroom. Outside the federal courthouse, Trump supporters gathered in what the media largely described as a circus. Trump's aide, Walt Nauta, who was also charged, appeared before the judge but did not enter a plea because he did not have a Florida lawyer. After his arraignment, Trump stopped at a Cuban restaurant in Little Havana and took photos with fans before flying to his Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club, where he railed against the charges as he hosted a fundraiser for his presidential campaign. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. It's very simple. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. They want you silent. And I am the only one that can save this nation because you know they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. In other Trump news, a federal judge said writer E. Jean Carroll can amend her successful defamation lawsuit against Trump to include comments he made at a CNN town hall. Last month, just one day after a New York jury found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carol in 1996, he went on to call the story fake and labeled Carol a whack job. She's seeking another $10 million in damages on top of the $5 million she was already awarded. Ukraine reports Russian missile strikes killed three people in the Black Sea port city of Odessa and another three people in the Donetsk region early today. The U.S. says it's sending more armored vehicles as well as artillery shells and air defense missiles to Ukraine following heavy losses as its counteroffensive gets underway. Meanwhile, The Wall Street Journal reports the Biden administration will also send depleted uranium tank shells to Ukraine, depleted uranium, a byproduct of the nuclear enrichment process is dangerous to human health when inhaled as dust or shrapnel and can contaminate water and soil in the surrounding environment. 
Climate activists in Johannesburg, South Africa, protested at the offices of Standard Bank during its annual shareholder meeting Monday, demanding the company end its support for the proposed East African crude oil pipeline. The 900-mile pipeline would carry crude oil from Uganda to Tanzania before being exported to refineries in Rotterdam. France's Total Energies and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation are behind ECOP, working with Ugandan and Tanzanian state-owned oil firms. Kumi Naidu, the former head of Greenpeace International and Amnesty International and Extinction Rebellion activist Malik Dasu, were violently removed from the Standard Bank during their peaceful protest. Climate activists in Germany also held Stop ECOP protests in Bonn, where they gathered for a COP28 preparatory conference. On Tuesday, the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who recently graduated from high school, spoke at the conference. It is what we decide now that will define the rest of humanity's future. And whether we choose to do that or not, if we don't, it will be a death sentence to countless of people. And it is already a death sentence to countless of people living on the front lines of the climate crisis today. An autopsy has revealed the Olympic track star, Tori Bowie, was eight months pregnant and in labor when she died just over a month ago. She was alone in her home at the time and may have suffered from respiratory distress and eclampsia, a rare but life-threatening pregnancy complication. Her baby also died. Tori Bowie, a three-time Olympic medalist, was just 32 years old. Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth complications and white women. Her Olympic teammate, Tiana Tuchel Bartoletta, posted on Twitter, quote, as of June 2023, three of the four members of Team USA's four by 100 meter relay team who ran the second fastest time in history and brought home three gold medals have nearly died or did die in childbirth. We deserve better. Hashtag black maternal health crisis. A black Mississippi civil rights attorney was arrested while filming a traffic stop as part of her work investigating discriminatory police practices. Jill Jefferson, who was held in jail for two nights before being released Monday, had filed a federal lawsuit against the Lexington police force alleging culture of corruption and racism. The ACLU of Mississippi said her arrest by Lexington police, quote, reeks of retaliation. In Arley, Montana, community members are engaging in a series of awareness walks this week to demand justice for Micah Westwolf, a 22-year-old indigenous woman who was struck and killed in March by a driver as she was walking home along a highway in the early morning hours. The driver was identified as Sunny White, a suspected white nationalist whose children are reportedly named Aryan and Nation and were in the car at the time of the crash. Sonny White has not been charged in connection with Westwolf's death. Michael Westwolf was a member of the Blackfeet tribe and was also Diné Cree and Klamath. She was an avid athlete and poet. Cornell West has switched party affiliation and is now running to be the Green Party's 2024 presidential nominee. The author, civil rights activist and professor of philosophy, announced earlier this month he would run as a candidate with the People's Party. West confirmed the news on the Katie Halper show. Which means when Great. it comes to infrastructure and institution, it's much broader and deeper. Access to the ballot, much broader. But in the end, as you know, this, you know, any candidacy 
to run the empire in order to dismantle the empire has to be part of a movement. You can see our recent interview with Cornell West on his presidential run at democracynow.org. In media news, Los Angeles public radio station Elliest, formerly KPCC, announced it's cutting staff by some 12 percent due to a budget shortfall. Members of the LAS union noted that the station's current CEO made around $675,000 last year, while the former CEO has been paid half a million dollars per year three years after leaving the job. This comes less than a week after the LA Times said it would lay off 70 for staffers representing 13 percent of the editorial members. UPS has agreed to mandate air conditioning in its delivery fleet as part of ongoing negotiations with workers in the Teamsters Union. A number of UPS delivery drivers have become sick from working in extreme temperatures. Last summer, a 24-year-old UPS driver in Southern California died on the job, which his family said was caused by the heat. This comes as some 330,000 union members are voting to authorize a possible August strike against UPS in what would be the largest single employer strike in U.S. history. At least 59 migrants drowned earlier today after their boat capsized off the Greek coast. Over 100 people were rescued, though it's not clear how many passengers were on the Italy-bound vessel before it sank. It's the deadliest shipwreck off the Greek coast this year. In related news, the International Organization for Migration says it recorded nearly 3,800 deaths in 2022 along land and sea routes in the Middle East and North Africa region, an 11 percent jump from the previous year. This comes as the U.N. said the global level of forced displacement has reached a record 110 million people. This is where we stand today. We have 110 million people that have fled because of conflict, persecution, discrimination, violence, often mixed with other motives, in particular the impact of climate change. Conflicts in Sudan and Ukraine are causing millions to flee. Syria and Afghanistan also continue to record massive numbers of refugees and displaced people. The mounting displacement crisis comes as aid agencies face severe funding shortages. The World Food Program says it'll be forced to cut aid to Syria by about a half, affecting two and a half million people in need. In Nigeria, a boat carrying guests returning from a wedding capsized, killing some 100 passengers. The tragedy, which also claimed the lives of children, occurred overnight Monday on the Niger River. Israeli forces killed a 19-year-old Palestinian and injured at least eight others during a raid on the Balata refugee camp in Nablus in the occupied West Bank. The soldiers were searching for another man when they started firing on people in the vicinity of his home. This is the brother of the wanted man who said their house was surrounded by Israeli forces who threatened to bomb it and kill everyone inside. Suddenly they shoot at people. A young child that was walking with groceries was shot. We knew it was the army. Then we heard them calling on megaphones for Assam to surrender. We know you were inside the house. Meanwhile, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is in China this week after Beijing offered to facilitate peace talks with Israel. And in Massachusetts, Governor Maura Healey unveiled a new Green Bank that will be focused on affordable housing and environmental justice. The Massachusetts Community Climate Bank is part of the state's effort to cut emissions by half by 2030 and to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. This is Governor Healey. We're going to be putting forward opportunities, tools to decarbonize buildings, which are, as I said, a major source of emissions 
Uh, this climate bank is going to grow over time to address the urgent needs across this sector. We're going to be able to innovate and finance deep energy retrofits, on-site electric vehicle charging, and solar projects that will demonstrate the viability of these technologies at a community-wide scale. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the booking and arraignment of Donald Trump. On Tuesday, the former president surrendered to authorities at a federal courthouse in Miami, then pleaded not guilty to 37 felony charges around his handling of classified documents. Trump became the first president to ever be arraigned on federal charges. The courtroom scene in Miami came just over two months after Trump pled not guilty to 34 felony criminal charges in New York in a separate case brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg involving the payment of hush money during Trump's 2016 campaign. The United States is now facing an unprecedented situation. A former president who was impeached twice and is now facing multiple indictments as he attempts to run again for the White House. The federal case was brought by special counsel Jack Smith, who observed Tuesday's proceedings in the Miami courtroom. After Trump was freed without bail, he flew to his Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club, where he gave a speech claiming he's the victim of political persecution. During the same address, Trump threatened to carry out his own political persecutions if he is elected president in 2024. A real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden, and the entire Biden crime family. Name a special prosecutor. And all others involved with the destruction of our elections, our borders, and our country itself. They're destroying our country. While many Republican lawmakers and presidential candidates are defending Donald Trump, Trump's former attorney general, William Barr, appeared on Fox News Sunday, said Trump is, quote, toast if the allegations set out in the indictment are true. I think the counts under the Espionage Act uh, that he willfully retained those documents are solid counts. Now, I, I do think we have to wait and see what the defense uh, says and, and, and what proves to be true. But I do think that even half of what Andy McCarthy said, which is if even half of it is true, then he's toast. I mean, it's a it's a pretty it's a very detailed indictment uh, and it's very, very damning. To talk more about the arraignment of Donald Trump, we're joined by Noah Bookbinder, president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or crew. He's formerly prosecuted public corruption cases for the Department of Justice. Noah, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you respond to uh, what happened yesterday in that Miami courtroom? Is it fair to say that President Trump was arraigned and arrested? Is that accurate? Uh, it is accurate as, as as a technical matter. He you know he came in. He was arraigned. Um, you know he was he wasn't arrested in the sense of having of being you know picked up at his house and hauled in or anything like that. But um, but he he was uh, processed, booked um, as as part of um, 
having been charged in federal court. And that's an extraordinary thing. That's never happened to a former president of the United States. Um, it is something that I think those of us who have been watching President, former President Trump carefully for a number of years uh, have, have foreseen because he's someone who committed uh, or at least uh, was credibly alleged to have committed so many offenses in the course of his presidency and his run for the presidency and his run for re-election that in some ways this felt inevitable. But what an extraordinary thing to happen in the United States. Well, talk about how extraordinary it was, how unusual this is and the significance of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it starts with the indictment itself. It's really a remarkable document, um, even for somebody who's, who's read a lot of federal criminal indictments. Uh, this was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, you know, the, the uh, it, it spells out. Uh, how significant these documents were that Donald Trump had in, in his possession at Mar-a-Lago and knowingly had. These were uh, nuclear uh, capabilities of the United States and allies. They were uh, potential uh, military plans. Um, so, you know, that's extraordinary. Uh, these scenes that are described in the indictment of Donald Trump showing the showing uh, highly, highly classified documents to uh, somebody from his political action committee, to uh, journalists that he was meeting with, people with no clearance, and talking about how these were secret documents that were classified that he really shouldn't be showing. Uh, it, it's, it's a scene that's hard to imagine with the president of the United States. The, the sort of shocking uh, description of boxes being moved at Donald Trump's instruction uh, to hide them from his own lawyers and from the Department of Justice, um, you know, it, it's 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 like something from uh, from a movie rather than something from real life. Uh, you know, there, there are the you know kind of incredible parts of that indictment uh, going through all of the times that Donald Trump in 2016 talked about how important it was for a president to understand uh, our laws about classified documents and to follow those and enforce them, showing that this is not somebody who didn't know what was going on here. Uh, and so it, it really is, uh, you know, lays out a remarkable case. It has pictures of these boxes, including classified documents, on the stage in the ballroom at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, it, it is... Uh, it, it, it is a, a, a remarkably crafted indictment uh, that sets out a uh, unique and, and, and kind of shocking set of facts. And in, in terms of the uniqueness of these charges, uh, Noah Bookbinder, you've pointed out that Donald Trump was not charged with the retention of any of the documents. He, he returned voluntarily. So none of his charges are for the kind of conduct, for example, that President Biden or, or former Vice President Pence or others had of, of uh, temper, uh, retaining documents for a period of time, but then giving them back. Could you talk further about that? That's absolutely right. I mean, there, there are really key differences between what President Trump is alleged and what the evidence suggests that, that he likely did and what, um, uh, what we understand happened with people like President Biden and former Vice President Pence. Uh, first of all, the number of documents is, is of a whole different scale. Uh, the fact that uh, there seems to be a lot of evidence that he knew that he had these documents, that he kept them intentionally, whereas with uh, President Biden, with former Vice President Pence, the evidence, as we understand it, suggests that they inadvertently took these documents, that as soon as they um, 
as they found out about them, they cooperated completely with investigators. They returned the documents. Um, that's not what happened with President Trump. But, but as you pointed out, the really key factor is that even putting aside what Donald Trump knew and how many documents were at issue, he wasn't charged with the well over 100 documents that he kept for uh, many, many months at Mar-a-Lago, um, but then did return voluntarily, which, which would look sort of like, on a larger scale, the kinds of things that happened with President Biden and former, uh, and former Vice President Pence. Instead, he was only charged in connection with those documents that he continued to keep, knowing that the Department of Justice was, uh, was requesting them, uh, was in, actually had, had gotten grand jury subpoena for them. And at that point, he continued to keep them. He uh, instructed people, apparently, to hide them. Um, and so he, th this is, it, it is his obstruction, um, and his, his willful obstruction, based on the evidence that we understand, that led to this place. It's quite likely, it appears from this indictment, that if when the, first the National Archives and then the Department of Justice requested those documents back, if he had just given them back, uh, he wouldn't have been facing these charges. But he didn't do that. He, he chose, knowing full well that he wasn't supposed to have these documents, that the government wanted them back, to continue uh, to keep them, and, and he went, took extraordinary steps to keep them from the government. I wanted to ask you also about what happens from here on in. Clearly, it's in the government's interest to move to trial as quickly as possible, especially in light of the fact that uh, Trump is running for president again. And uh, it's in Trump's interest to delay the proceedings as much as possible. I'm wondering your sense of what will unfold. Yeah, absolutely. The, the federal government uh, is subject to uh, legislation called the, the Speedy Trial Act, which says that a case is actually supposed to go to trial within 70 days of an indictment. Um, now, there are lots of things that can, that can stop that, that count of, of 70 days, um, and, and a lot of those are in place to protect a defendant, to make sure a defendant has a right to, um, to, to thoroughly make their case and, and, and explore the government's case. Um, and so, you know, when a defendant files motions, uh, whether it's to dismiss the case or whether it's to keep out certain kinds of evidence, um, the, the, the counting toward, toward that 70-day uh, period stops. Um, I think that you're right that the, uh, the prosecutors are going to try to move this as quickly as possible, uh, understanding that they don't want to be in a situation of having a trial as elections are, are approaching. Um, and uh, Donald Trump, for years in uh, civil litigation of all kinds, has used delay tactics. He's a master at it. Um, and you know, I certainly expect that that will, that will be the case here, that he will, he will move to have the charges thrown out. He will challenge every aspect of this prosecution. Um, I do think that it is eminently possible for uh, this case to go to trial and get through trial uh, well before the 2024 election. Uh, in, in there, there obviously there aren't cases similar to this, but looking at other complicated, high-profile uh, cases like, for instance, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, two uh, 
associates of Donald Trump who went to trial, both of those were completed within a year of when they were indicted. Uh, this case, for all its extraordinary nature, is not a terribly complicated case, and there's no reason that it shouldn't be able to come to trial within a year or so. But I th do think that Donald Trump will do everything in his power to delay, because that's what he tends to do. Everyone knows the saying, uh, justice delayed is justice denied. And this point you're making of him wanting to delay it, um, I have a couple questions on this. Uh, right now, he is charged with his co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, who is called his body man, right? He did not plead yesterday. He did not have a local lawyer. Could, if he has to get that lawyer, that lawyer say, I need maybe up to three months or something to get ready. And a judge who is clearly extremely pro-Trump and appointed by Trump, right, Tr uh, Judge uh, Aileen Cannon, um, also, if she wants to delay this, certainly is in charge of that schedule. Now, yesterday, the judge was Judge Jonathan Goodman, um, the magistrate judge. But what happened with Nauta and also his warning that Trump, who came in with Nauta, drove in with Nauta, left with Nauta, is not allowed to talk to Nauta or other witnesses? And will their trials be separate? Uh, so I think a lot of this were we're just starting to figure out, and I think the court is just starting to figure out. Um, you know, I think that that Nada not coming in with an attorney who was, uh, you know, who was a local attorney who could stand in that court, this is pretty standard stuff. The court can pretty quickly um, either compel Nada to, to find an attorney or help him to find an attorney. That happens, that kind of thing happens all the time. It can be pretty quickly resolved, uh, and, and I expect that it will be. Um, you know, Judge Cannon, uh, in the earlier uh, litigation about the search of Mar-a-Lago, uh, oh, no. issued these uh, really extraordinary uh, decisions in Donald Trump's favor, which were so contrary to the law that uh, an, appe an appeals panel, which included several judges also appointed by President Trump, uh, not only reversed her, but in really, really harsh terms. Um, so that's obviously cause for some concern. That said, that's already happened. And, you know, I think Judge Cannon, uh, I, I believe and, and hope, will be chastised by what happened before it actually happened in two separate rounds. And I, I believe will... Uh, will feel some need to uh, preside over this matter in a way that is fair and, uh, and, and, and legally proper. Uh, she will certainly have a lot of control over the schedule. That's something that is a bit worrisome, that, that obviously uh, we'll all have to keep an eye on. Um, but I think that, that Special Prosecutor Jack Smith will be watching closely, that if she does anything that seems out of line with the law, he will go back up to the 11th Circuit, to the Court of Appeals that, that oversees the, the district court in Florida, and I expect that they will not hesitate to act again if it gets to that point, which, which I hope that it doesn't. As far as separate trials, I think it's too early to say. Um, and, you know, th 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 that... Um, you know, I do think that that order. Um, Meaning, could they flip? As to not could talking, they flip Walt Nada? I, I I think that is certainly a possibility. Uh, I, I mean, the, these the facts in this indictment are 
as I said, really unusual. Um, and and the evidence seems very, very strong. Most defendants would have pled guilty already. Um, you know, people in situations like Donald Trump, um, but in, in many cases much, much less severe, have quickly pled guilty. I don't expect Donald Trump to do that. That's not his style. Uh, Nada, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us know all that much about Walt Nada. Uh, certainly based on the evidence, you would expect him to quickly plead guilty, but he does seem to have an awful lot of loyalty to Donald Trump. Um, it, it is a, sort of a difficult situation. We don't yeah. have much time, but I wanted to ask you about crew pursuing okay. Trump's disqualification to run for president under the 14th Amendment. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. So the 14th Amendment to the Constitution has a provision that was put in after the Civil War uh, that says that if you swore an oath uh, to defend the Constitution and then you engaged in insurrection, you are disqualified from federal or state office, including the presidency. Um, it, was, it was meant to, to say that people who try to overthrow a government are not then allowed to be in charge of that same government. Um, and that is something that is very much good law today. Uh, my organization crew was actually able to go to court in, in New Mexico and get a decision that uh, a county commissioner in New Mexico who in, uh, participated in the January 6, 2021 insurrection uh, was, was removed from office and disqualified from future office. And that's something that, uh, by its facts, should apply, we believe does apply to Donald Trump. And it's going to be really important. Um, even if he is uh, convicted of federal offenses, that doesn't prohibit him from running for president. It doesn't prohibit him from, from serving for, for president. But the Constitution does. And, uh, you know, it, it's crucial to protect this country from future insurrections, future efforts to overturn elections. And we believe that, that enforcing this, this really important, even if largely forgotten, provision of the Constitution is a, is a crucial way to make sure that that doesn't happen going forward. Uh, and last question, we just have 20 seconds. You have the president, Republican presidential candidates that continue to defend him. And then you have people like Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Trump, the former South Carolina governor, sort of flipping a bit and saying, well, if it's serious, if these if the if it's true, um, President Trump was reckless but that if she became president, she would pardon him. And this has been floated several times by candidates. What about that? Uh, well, look, uh, th these are all people who in the past have talked about certainly the importance of national security, the importance of protecting classified information. Uh, I think it's hard for them to now come out and say it doesn't matter. Uh, and so it, it is at least a little bit of a shift, makes some sense. Um, it is hard to know what to do with a former president who uh, appears to have, have violated the criminal law. It is difficult for the country. Um, I don't think that a pardon is appropriate here, um, because I think you do need accountability for this kind of lawlessness. Um, but it's good to see candidates at least struggling with these these issues rather than simply defending Donald Trump at all costs. Noah Bookbinder, we want to thank you for being with us, President of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or crew, formerly prosecuted public corruption cases at the Department of Justice. Coming up, while Donald Trump was freed without bail for violating the Espionage Act, we'll look at how 
whistleblowers, reality winner Daniel Hale and others were treated very differently. Back in 30 seconds. I was all right for a while. I could smile for a while. Then I saw you last night. You held my hand so tight when you stopped to say hello. Orbison and Katie Lang. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We continue to look at the arraignment of Donald Trump, who pleaded not guilty Tuesday to 37 federal counts, including 31 counts of violating the Espionage Act. Trump becomes the most high-profile person ever charged under the 1917 law. While Trump was released without needing to post bail, many others charged under the Espionage Act have faced far different treatment under President Trump. For example, in 2017, U.S. intelligence contractor Reality Winner was arrested for leaking a single document about Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. She was held without bail, ended up spending five years in prison. In 2019, former U.S. intelligence analyst Daniel Hale was arrested and held without bail for leaking documents about the secretive U.S. drone program. In 2021, he was sentenced to more than three years in prison. He remains locked up. On Tuesday night, Donald Trump spoke out against the Espionage Act charges. Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents. As president, the law that applies to this case is not the Espionage Act, but very simply the Presidential Records Act, which is not even mentioned in this ridiculous 44-page indictment. Under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal, I had every right to have these documents. We're joined now by Chip Gibbons, policy director of Defending Rights and Dissent, where he has advised multiple congressional offices on reforming the Espionage Act. So you have Donald Trump um, pleading not guilty to 37 charges, uh, Chip. 31 of them related to the Espionage Act. Can you talk about the significance of this and the significance of him walking out of court and compare it to other cases you've been involved with? Well, it's very significant because here we have a man who, when he was president, his administration presided over five different Espionage Act prosecutions. Uh, Trump, in that clip you said you uh, played, said the Espionage Act applies to traitors and spies. Not one of those prosecutions was of a traitor or a spy. They were of reality winner, a whistleblower. They were of Daniel Hale, a whistleblower who gave information about the drone program to the public because his conscience was so shocked uh, by what by the civilian casualties in it. You had Terry Albury, uh, FBI agent who was disturbed by the domestic war on terror and the surveillance of the Muslim community and the evisceration of the Bill of Rights. 
you had Joshua Schulte, who was accused and convicted of giving information to WikiLeaks, but he, he denies it was him. And then you have Julian Assange, the very first time in U.S. history a journalist has been indicted under the Espionage Act, and all of the charges against Assange pertain to 2010 to 2011 uh, revelations about U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. policies at Guantanamo, and these really awful, corrupt backroom deals that the State Department was involved in. So Donald Trump's administration loved the Espionage Act. They didn't use it against traitors or spies. They used it against whistleblowers, journalists, and people accused of giving information to the media. So I I think that's pretty significant in and of itself, particularly when you consider there's always been this dual-track system of justice under the Espionage Act. Uh, Prior to the Trump case, I've always argued, and I think the Trump case complicates this, I've always argued that Espionage Act prosecutions are inherently political prosecutions, right? If I'm in Barack Obama or George Bush's or Donald Trump's inner circle and I go to the newspaper and I feed them classified information to promote the drone program, promote the investigation into Assange, or I go talk to Hollywood filmmakers to give them information so they can make a film whitewashing torture, I'm not going to be prosecuted. And the biggest leaker of U.S. government secrets is the U.S. government. Everyone in Washington knows that. But if I go and I'm a, I'm a soldier in Afghanistan and I'm horrified, I'm horrified by the civilian casualties in the drone program, and I watch Barack Obama on TV lie about how uh, protective of human rights this, this international assassination program is, or I'm in Iraq and I'm horrified by the dehumanization of of the Iraqi people and the violence inherent in that sort of neo-colonial occupation, and I go to the media with that information, they're going to prosecute me. So up until Trump, the Espionage Act has always been used as a sort of viewpoint discrimination-based law, because it's an extremely broad law, right? I mean, under the letter of the Espionage Act, if I read in the Washington Post that the CIA thought that Ukraine might bomb the Nord Stream pipeline, and I tweet that, I text that, I just talk about it to a barista, I've violated the Espionage Act, right? Uh, Your previous guest was mentioning the difference between Biden, Pence's, and Trump's conduct, and I think that's absolutely correct, but under the breath of the Espionage Act, you know, Pence and Biden, you know, did violate it, just like Trump did violate it for those documents he returned. But because it's such a broad, basically unconstitutional law, it's applied with a lot of limitations put on it. So it's an incredible uh, moment in U.S. history that we have a president who is finally being held accountable under the Espionage Act, as opposed to sort of whistleblowers and journalists who expose the U.S. national security state. And while that is sort of a step away from the dual system of justice we've seen under the Espionage Act, I have to stress, I don't think the Espionage Act as drafted is a legitimate tool. I don't think it should be used to prosecute anyone even someone as loathsome as Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is still getting a lot of leeway, right? He was given a chance to return documents, and he wasn't charged for those documents. Even though he broke the letter of the law, even though he uh, 
took them when he shouldn't have had them. And while a Biden or a Pence might get away with that, a Daniel Hale or a Thomas Drake would not have. So there's always been this dual track system under the Espionage Act, one set of rules for the powerful, one set of rules for those who support and promote U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. national security state, and one set of rules for those public servants whose conscience tells them that the principles, in many cases, that led them to government in the first place are being violated by the government, who are subjected to horrible treatment. Well, Chief Gibbons, but precisely because of the uh, of the uh, unusual situation here, the, uh, aren't you, in essence, uh, saying? And I and I would tend to agree with you that the use of the Espionage Act in this in this particular case does smack and will be seen by many Trump supporters and even those who are not necessarily his supporters, but who don't like government overreach, uh, to see this as a political prosecution. Uh, what do you say about uh, Trump's claim that he should have been? more properly prosecuted if he was going to be prosecuted at all under the Presidential Records Act? The Presidential Records Act is a red herring. It it doesn't help Trump at all, and it is a civil statute. Uh, Trump committed numerous crimes in lying to—if the indictment is true, and as a civil libertarian, I have to stress that— you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. But if the indictment is true, I mean, he did conceal information from investigators. He was given a chance to give documents back. He didn't—he gave some of them back. He hid others. And he just sort of kept thumbing his nose at the government. And I would note there are other charges that could be brought against Trump besides the Espionage Act. Uh, under Donald Trump's presidency, mishandling classified information, which I think— Putting all those documents in a bathroom is clearly mishandling classified information, was moved from a misdemeanor to a felony. There's other statutes about theft of government property. I mean, under the Presidential Records Act, those documents belong to we the people, not Donald Trump. And he took them out of the White House, and he's very brazen about that. So I, I don't think the choices here are letting Trump go scot-free again or bringing the Espionage Act charges against him, given how problematic they are. And I, I, do, I do worry that some of the use of the Espionage Act, given that it's historically a law of political repression, will sort of embolden Trump's claims that he is— being victimized by the deep state. But I really want to point out how nonsensical those claims are. It's true that Trump does not enjoy the warm relations with the national security establishment that uh, Barack Obama or Dick Cheney does. But let's remember, he ran for president the first time calling for uh, spying on mosques, something worse than torture, and murdering the families of suspected terrorists and bombing things. He escalated U.S. air wars in an unprecedented way. He escalated regime change operations against Venezuela and Iran. He almost started a war with Iran by assassinating an Iranian general in Iraq, a sovereign country where he had been invited. And he increased the sanctions on on Cuba. He increased the drone wars. And he was the one who first sent lethal aid to Ukraine. So Donald Trump has very much, uh, in a lot of ways, been uh, a a deep state president, even though he does not enjoy this sort of warm personal relations with the U.S. national security establishment, which is not at all based in policy, since his policies have been 
you know, some of the worst types of national security, military, industrial complex, including these record-breaking, although Biden has now broken his record, uh, defense budgets uh, aimed at great power competition with China and Russia. So I, he's not a victim of the deep state. He's a victim of his own hubris and, quite frankly, foolishness. And how would you uh, see the uh, the necessary reforms to the Espionage Act to be able to protect uh, future whistleblowers? The Espionage Act absolutely needs to be reformed. The biggest thing is that right now you don't have to prove someone had this specific intent to harm U.S. national security or uh, aid a foreign power. You just have to have a reason to believe your actions would do that. And while that sounds like a high standard, in the whistleblower cases, the government basically says, well, you took classification training, you, you knew that... Uh, if you release class information, you had reason to believe the sky would fall. And I believe the U.S. government's position is basically, if it says the information is secret, you have a reason to believe that, uh, you know, even though they lie constantly, uh, you have a reason to believe that it will harm national security. So allow, so making the government prove actual espionage, allowing whistleblowers or anyone to testify about the purpose of their process, uh, the purpose of their leaks. Right. Because right now, juries are barred from hearing what was leaked or why it was leaked. And, and you can see why the government wants that. Right. If you're Edward Snowden and you tell the jury, I saw this illegal surveillance, I leaked it. The journalists got Pulitzer Prizes. The Congress changed the law. The court ruled the program unconstitutional or I'm sorry, illegal and likely unconstitutional. Jury is going to have some questions about what the government's doing, as well as creating an affirmative public interest defense, right? The specific intent requirement to prove harm to national security is a backdoor public interest defense, but I also think you need a uh, frontdoor public interest defense. And you also need to limit the Espionage Act so it only applies to those who have a duty to protect classified information. You know, Donald Trump has a duty to protect classified information. If I read in the Washington Post, or the New York Times about the Pentagon Papers, I don't have a duty to keep that secret. The journalists who printed it don't have a duty to keep it secret. And, and one thing I would, I would also add is that, you know, whistleblowers have been prohibited from uh, challenging the classification of documents on the basis that only the executive branch can determine whether something is classified. And even if a document is illegally classified, because you can't classify a document to conceal misconduct, it doesn't matter because the Espionage Act, which predates the classification system, mentions or covers both properly and improperly classified information. And just going back, I want to point out that when Daniel Hale uh, was facing trial, the prosecution put a motion to the judge asking that Daniel Hale be barred from mentioning his good motives. Good motives are, are the prosecutor's words, not mine, although I think Daniel Hale had impeccable motives. Uh, you know, not that he couldn't bring up the classification and he Chip, couldn't bring up the seconds. inconsistency and leaks. Sure. Yes. Chip, we want to thank you so much for being with us. And people can go to our website to see our interviews with whistleblowers or about them if they're imprisoned, from Jeffrey Sterling to John Kiriakou, from Reality Winner to Daniel Hale, uh, to Edward Snowden, to Julian Assange and others. Chip Gibbons is policy director of Defending Rights and Dissent, where he's advised multiple congressional offices on reforming the Espionage Act. Coming up, we speak with the sister of a jailed Saudi 
dissident about how Saudi Arabia is using its oil fortune to launder its image by taking over the world of professional golf with the merger of Live Golf and the PGA Tour. Back in 30 seconds. In my hands, I hold the ashes. In my veins, black pitch runs. In my chest, fire catches. In my way, setting sun. Ben Nichols, The Last Pale Light in the West, inspired by the work of the late author Cormac McCarthy, who has died at the age of 89 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He once wrote, Keep a little fire burning, however small, however hidden. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. On Monday, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal opened a probe into the Professional Golfers Association of America merger of their PGA Tour with the Saudi Live Golf Tour. The merger came as a shock to much of the sports world, as the PGA spent months trying to undermine Live by banning golfers who joined the Saudi venture from participating in PGA events. Critics say it's the latest example of sports washing to gain cultural and corporate influence by a country accused of massive human rights violations. Senator Blumenthal chairs the Homeland Security Subcommittee on Investigations in letters to PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan and Live CEO Greg Norman. <clears throat> he noted Saudi Arabia's, quote, deeply disturbing human rights record at home and abroad. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Saudi Arabia last week meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto head of state in Jeddah. As a presidential candidate, Biden vowed to make Saudi Arabia a pariah over its human rights record after the assassination of the journalist, the Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi. For more on all of this, we're joined in Brussels by Lena Alvold head of advocacy for an independent nonprofit group that works to defend human rights in Saudi Arabia. She is the sister of the jailed Saudi feminist activist, Lujain Ahathlul. Um, welcome to Democracy Now! If you could pronounce your name for me, I'm sorry that I didn't pronounce it correctly, and that's very important. <laughs> no worries at all. I'm uh, Lina Al-Hadlul, and thank you for having me. <clears throat> well, thank you so much for joining us. Can you talk about what in the sports world, and even outside of that, is so significant? This joining of what you, if you could explain what Saudi Arabia's live golf is with the PGA Tour and the complete turnaround of the PGA Tour, condemning Saudi Arabia for the last year, talking about its human rights abuses, and now joining in uh, this golf alliance. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've been following the story for over a year now, and um, you know, human rights and whitewashing was um, the main point um, that people were discussing. And what we see now is that money has spoken, money has won. And basically what is happening is that Saudi Arabia is not only whitewashing its image by investing in sports and by infiltrating the, this industry, it is in the long run also very dangerous because once 
you know, we pass on from soft power, that is Saudi Arabia, um, you know, buying a new image by, you know, pretending it is opening up and that they're, you know, they're hosting a sports event. Now, afterwards, in the long run, they will have the money, they will have control, they will have influence in many sectors. And this is where it's getting really dangerous. So I think it's not only about whitewashing its image. In the long run, it's also about control and influence in many sectors, including the sports sector. Could you talk about the the huge rise of even of executions in Saudi Arabia? Amnesty revealed that they tripled uh, between 2021 and 2022, and uh, yet the world hears nothing about this. Yes, thank you very much for this question, and I think it's very uh, related uh, to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, when um, Biden was saying that Saudi Arabia was a pariah um, and that you know they they won't go back to business as usual with Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and then um, they still go for you know real politique and you know for uh, U.S. interests, they go to Saudi Arabia and they fist bump um, MBS. What happened afterwards? Actually, just afterwards. Um, is the, uh, the mass execution of 81 people in one day. Um, this year now we, ha we have, um, uh, unfortunately, 51, uh, 52 people have been executed um, and we're only in June. So the, the Saudi Arabia's uh, human rights record has... Um, deteriorated after MBS has been rehabilitated, including with Biden and the Blinken's uh, visit, because what Saudi Arabia understands or how it um, um, you know, interprets these visits um, is that it is a green light for them to, to double down on repression, that if they won't be held accountable, although they've been called by the, you know, the U.S., their biggest ally as a pariah, and uh, they still have, um, they've been still, uh, MBS has been granted um, immunity or impunity uh, in, in the U.S. So they know that now nothing will stop them, uh, that they have been rehabilitated, and even worse than that is that they can, you know, not only double down on repression on Saudi people, they will even show that their power now, um, that they're so emboldened and so empowered that they can that they can target U.S. citizens. And that is the case of Saad al-Madi, who has been arrested in Saudi Arabia for tweeting. He's been um, sentenced to dozens of years in prison. Um, at the end of the day, now he has been released because there has been a huge campaign against this sentence, but he is still on a travel ban in Saudi Arabia. So a U.S. citizen that is more than 70 years old is on a travel ban in Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. cannot do anything to to bring it back home. You know, we see that Saudi Arabia has felt emboldened by these um, short-sighted policies of the U.S. and for, for the lack of a strong uh, stance uh, regarding human rights with the Saudi government and MBS specifically. Lena, can you talk about your sister, um, what's happened to her, where she is now, um, if she's, uh, and then talk about the broader issue of women's rights and human rights in Saudi Arabia? Yes, thank you, Amy. Um, so my sister, Lujain Al-Hadloul, um, was, unfortunately, she can't be anymore, a human rights activist. Uh, she was the leader of the Women to Drive campaign in Saudi Arabia. So uh, before 2018, women could not drive in Saudi Arabia, um, and they were and they still are subjected 
to the male guardianship system, uh, meaning that us as Saudi women, we are considered as minors till the end of our lives. Uh, every important decision of our life uh, has to be um, approved by uh, our male guardian, who is uh, our father. Uh, then when we get married, it is our husband. And sometimes it even becomes uh, our son. Um, so in that context, my sister uh, was arrested many times because she was the leader of the Women to Drive campaign uh, and also campaigned against the male guardianship system. But you know what's, what is very ironic is that the, her last arrest in, in, in 2018 was at, at the exact same time when the Saudi government was about to announce that they're finally allowing women to drive. So when the, the, the world was applauding MBS and, and the government as reformers, as changing the country, and as opening it up, uh, they were actually arresting the, the, the very feminists who have been fighting for it for years. My sister was arrested in 2018. There was a huge defamation campaign against her on Saudi uh, media uh, with her picture and uh, where it was written uh, traitor, that she's an af a foreign of agent uh, states, without really um, stating which state uh, she was an agent of. And she was forcibly disappeared uh, for a long time. Um, and then uh, we found out that when she was um, forcibly disappeared, uh, she was in a torture facility, a torture center, being tortured by Saud al-Ghahdani, Mohammed um, bin Salman's right-hand man. Um, and later on, she received her official charges, and she was actually explicitly charged with her activism, and including being in contact with Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, the UK, UK diplomats, uh, and EU diplomats, um, which means that Saudi Arabia when it was touring the world, being applauded for reforming, was actually sentencing its own citizens for being in contact with what um, we thought were allies. Um, so she was then sentenced to five years and eight months, uh, but released on probation uh, in February 2021. She is now on a travel ban, meaning that she cannot leave Saudi Arabia. And she lives, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but this is the situation. She has been targeted with Pegasus after her release, which is an Israeli spyware, a zero-click Israeli spyware, meaning that you don't have to click anything on your phone and you are still um, hacked and they can see everything. Um, on your phone. Uh, so she's been surveilled. She feels, you know, of course she feels uh, surveilled. And what is important to note is that yeah. my whole family is on a travel ban, meaning that there are threats of arrest um, and that they're trying to silence uh, even the relatives of activists. We only have 10 seconds, but your response to the meeting of Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Mohammed uh, um, bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, and what came of that? Well, um, I think it's um, very clear. My message is that we have warned that uh, without strong human rights conditions to rehabilitate MBS or to go back to business as usual with Saudi Arabia won't, won't only harm Saudi people, but it will backfire. Emboldening um, someone like MBS who has imprisoned the prime minister of a sovereign state, Lebanon, and who has started the worst uh, war, um, the, uh, Yemen, will backfire. Um, so the U.S. should 
stop you know, thinking about short-sighted policies and start uh, thinking about the long-term uh, st- strategies. And the bordering MBS will only um, feed a monster that will be unstoppable in, in a couple of years. Lena Hathlul, we want to thank you for being with us, head of the Advo- of advocacy for the independent nonprofit group that works to defend human rights in Saudi Arabia, sister of Saudi feminist activist Lujain Al-Hathlul. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.